0: Oh, you know
1: To a very special season of Spooks edition of Dead Pit Radio. I am the creepy Kentuckian.
2: And I'm Uncle Bill.
1: What's going on, Uncle Bill? You keeping it real?
2: I want to keep it real. I'm just laying here in my kids' bed talking to you on the
1: phone. (laughs) There's nothing
2: more hardcore than laying like a princess bed talking to you.
1: Right. So Yeah, we're doing a show a little bit earlier than normal, I guess, but we had a really sweet idea and we wanted to, we was excited to do it, so we're going to do it, and uh, the Slipster of Style is going to join us for that segment we're going to be talking about, uh, Anchor Bay Entertainment, Uncle Bill.
2: A company that when we first started really really getting into horror films that was the go-to company where you know they were releasing all of the Fulci stuff and even like Evil Dead and stuff like that that had never been out and I remember you getting I'm trying to remember which one it was it was either City of Living Dead I think it was City of Living Dead like on DVD and it, yeah that, or something it was amazing that that would even exist
1: it was City of Living Dead we'll talk about that like I said there's a lot of fascinating stuff with Anchor Bay Entertainment, um, just the history of them. And we're going to – Felcher, of course, worked for him for a long time. we talk to him next segment uh, and uh, get some, some inside tidbits from the Slipster from his time at uh, Anchor Bay Entertainment. So um, it's kind of like a retrospective, if you will, because Anchor Bay – Um, I think it was about three years ago, got completely bought out and the name was kind of dissolved into, I think it's Lionsgate, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later on.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff that I've been curious about for a long time about what the backstage stuff that was happening in Anchor Bay was around that time and what the hell happened to them. Right. So we're going to ask him all.
1: Yeah. So. um we uh will have Sleepy on here in just a little bit. I uh, did want to do just a little uh kind of an intro to the show because there seems to be a lot of stuff going on right now. Of course it is Deadpit.com season of spooks from September the 1st to October 31st. It's going to be a spooky time, Uncle Bill, and there's a lot of announcements that's been going on, so the big one that uh this past week that uh, we definitely need to mention on here. Again, we're not going to go through the news or anything, but there's a few announcements that we probably do need to to talk about. That would be the final specs and extras for the Screen Factory Friday the thirteenth collection. It's a deluxe edition. Um it literally like there's so much shit that they've announced on this thing that it takes me about ten minutes to read through all of it. So I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Thank God. But, um, I mean, some of the key things that they announced that's really exciting. I don't know if you've heard about this. There is, uh, for the first time ever, we will get to see some deleted gore footage from the 1981 sequel, Friday the 13th, Part Two, um, including the scene that everyone always talks about. I think there's pictures of it with Jeff and Sandra from the movie. Uh, uh, I think it's in Crystal Lake Memories. They have photos of it and all that. So we'll get to see that. And that's the big thing. Like people didn't know anything about that. And they do have a bunch of new, um, each, the, each of these discs, like Friday the 13th is going to have two different cuts. Uh, the theatrical and the uncut has two different discs just for the first movie. And, um, the first four films are remastered in 4k, and there's all kinds of new stuff with part two, which I know before we had asked um Slippy if there's gonna be more stuff included, <laughs> he was not bullshitting there. Um there's quite a bit of new stuff. Yep. There's a couple of different uh new audio commentaries with um the first one's with Amy Steele, Tommy Hudson and Peter Brackey. Um and then there's one with a lot of the cast the rest of the cast of the movie. Uh Russell Todd, Kirsten Baker. Bill Randolph, all the people, Stu Charno's even in it. Where in the hell did they find Stu Charno at? Hell. So that no, no, one. What
2: he? By the way, he tried to interview him. He wanted money.
1: Yeah, I do remember something like that. We'd, cause he kept sending me emails all the time. I was like, oh hell. I mean, that, okay. I get. I mean, I guess we could interview him. We'd we do the Friday the Thirteenth. Spectaculars at the time, and I was like, okay, you can. And then it was like, <laughs> he wanted 50 bucks or something like that. I think
2: <laughs> I don't know why. But when you said his name, it just triggered that in me. Like, that's the only thing I can really remember about him, yeah. I, him from the last 20 years, or
1: so. I completely forgot about that, but yeah, that did happen. Um, so but anyway, you know, that's it, a side point, but yeah, I mean, um, the, of course, we already knew that Friday the 13th, part three, was going to have the 3D version of the movie and uh part four has let's see i don't know if there's anything that new for part four again you can go on screen factory's website and look um they've got this commentary right here was for part five was recorded quite a while ago uh with melanie kinneman uh deborah voris uh tiffany Hellman. uh again peter bracky's on all these new commentaries the, you remember when that that was recorded quite a while back i think do you remember when that they were i don't know what come out of. Five. yeah for part five. Oh
2: god that would have had to have been i'm trying to think of when that would have been that would have let's see i'm
1: i'm thinking it may have been for the original we thought it was going to be on the original yep. box
2: set yeah, because I think it was right around the time when we met Steinman and all that stuff happened. Yeah. They were releasing that DVD and everything.
1: Yeah, I, well, maybe we can ask Feltra that if we can remember, but um, brand-new audio, audio commentaries for a lot of the movies. Uh, again, part six has got one with pretty much the entire cast, including Tom Matthews and C.J. Graham and you know the whole main cast. For some reason, they decided to do a lot of fan commentaries with Adam Green and Joe Lynch, which it's fine, I guess. But is that really gonna?
2: <laughs> I know how much you hate those for some reason.
1: Well, uh, it seems like they did them before, and they're now they're just getting to do more of the sequels and stuff. So I just wish they would mix it up and like. I, to me, it would be more fun if they would get like YouTube personalities to do the commentaries, like get uh, angry video game nerd or somebody like that to do it like i would be more interested in that than just fucking some b-movie directors (laughs) Uh, that's just me but uh
2: (laughs) i mean in a way i kind of agree with you but i mean you really go hardcore with a lot of these guys it's fucking hilarious
1: yeah fuck them guys yeah um but yeah go ahead
2: I was just going to say like I got to agree like majority of time even in documentaries like just where they're doing like horror retrospectives and stuff when people that, like that come on it's just like the talking heads approach where they're just guys that were fans or whatever like there's a million fucking ones like that they really don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, I do agree with that.
1: So, um, they did, this one's interesting too. I mean, they've got, um, a lot of new stuff for Jason goes to hell, which is interesting. Like doc, it looks like documentary featurette stuff. Um, but for Jason X, they, they've got an audio commentary <laughs> on that, that, uh, with Todd farmer, which who's the writer. And we actually tried to interview him at one time as well. And he just had no interest at all in it. Like he's from Kentucky as well. And this is when we were kind of doing interviews with, we were, you know, this was around the time we were doing the carpenter and the Romero interviews and stuff like that. He totally blew us off. I believe. I I think that was Todd Farmer that did that. But, uh, (laughs)
2: he's like, I hate you, bunch of fucking
1: hillbillies. Yeah. I moved away from Kentucky. (laughs) I don't want to talk to you redneck motherfuckers. So, um, but yeah, they've got a, a, a lot of new stuff with Todd Farmer, um, featurettes and stuff like that. Um, for they didn't do anything new for Freddy vs. Jason or Friday the Thirteenth the remake, but they do have fifth disc. Listen to this shit. This is ridiculous. Disc fifteen and sixteen are nothing but bonus features. <laughs> so. Two yeah, I- discs, Blu-ray discs, full of bonus features. You've got stuff like uh, Alice Cooper, the music video for Man Behind the Mask, and they have like a documentary on that music video. Interview Alice Cooper and all that. Um, you've got a lot of like visits from the locations of the movie. Um, interviews with uh, Sean Cunningham is on there. Steve Miner. I mean, it's just it is insanely packed, uh, box set. And I just wanted to touch on that before we get into the, you know, the big portion of the show, the Anchor Bay entertainment, uh, retrospective. But yeah, I mean, that's a, a major, probably the biggest set, um, that Screen Factory has ever produced.
2: I mean, I'll go ahead and say it, like looking at all this on here. Like, I don't think I've ever seen another box set that had that many, like, special.
1: Right.
2: Or the, you know, ones. Two, like you were saying, two discs that have full special disc. Right. Has new special features, most. So that's kind of crazy yeah
1: yeah so yeah it's it's a packed uh set from uh screen factory is coming out in october uh, we both got it pre-ordered so we've actually been pre-ordering quite a bit of shit lately i've noticed we were talking about that last night have you gotten anything else new lately you want to mention
2: yeah actually i have I'm stuck inside all the time and you impulse buy shit but like I got on eBay and Blu-rays that I didn't have. I think it was a lot of 13, and I actually uh, won that lot. And I don't even want to talk about how much I paid for it, but that's coming in soon. <laughs> yeah, I I'll tell you.
1: I haven't done the eBay thing uh, with uh, Blu-rays for a while. I, I normally just get them new, but yeah, it's. I guess you could get a pretty good deal if you could buy them in a big lot.
2: Pay out the ass, like. But I can tell you, I know this is kind of like ridiculous, but to me, vinegar syndrome and scorpion releasing are kind of like back at that time, back in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, because they're releasing a lot of like really obscure-ish kind of horror films that don't get any attention, and the way that they release them with the transfers and the bonus features and stuff like that is like they released them almost at their mainstream mm-hmm. film, right. which I think is what you've got to do for collectors anyway.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, um, like actually I've gotten the Goonies 4k and I got on, I guess you would count that as horror, but I've ordered the Friday the 13th set, the new Vestron sets is coming out. Um, arrow videos actually got a, um, Got a pretty big sale right now on Amazon and or Best Buy. And I finally picked up the Creep Show 2 um Blu-ray that I oddly enough, yeah. the last Creep Show 2 uh, copy that I'd bought was the Old Anchor Bay from uh, like 2000, 2001 or whatever when that came out. So um I definitely need to upgrade on that. That's one of my favorite childhood horror movies, I would say, was Creep Show Two. Um, and then the Hills Have Eyes, I picked that one up because I remember the original Blu-ray of that one sucks ass. It looks like the DVD. <laughs> so it oh,
2: does. Yeah. that was, that came out from what was that company called? That I think it was released like
1: image entertainment or something like that.
2: Yeah, it was just, I remember when that first came out, I was talking so much shit about it, but like they released several of them that, like that, that were just horrible transfers.
1: Yeah. So, but, um, and then what else? I I got Edge of the Axe. I didn't even follow your. Uh, I didn't take your advice. I got it anyway. But yeah, a lot of these discs are coming out. That um, they're on sale for like ten, fifteen dollars lower than they normally are. So and I don't yeah. have many Arrow Blu-rays, so I stocked up on them.
2: It's my collection. I had to buy, like, when you told me about it, I looked at them and I had to buy um the Hen and Lauder ones because I didn't have anything like decent of those. So I bought uh, Brain Damage and Basket Case because the Basket Case one is actually the limited edition one that's pretty high right now. So mm-hmm. I would have bought both those.
1: So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sales I'm guessing that's going to be coming up as well. Um, there's a few movies that I'd still would like to get, but I don't know if these movies ever go on sale. So it's, it's more like, I guess, higher budget independent movies that I've had my eyes on. And I don't, nobody on eBay really has them. So I may have to bite the bullet and just pay full blown retail for that shit. I don't want to, but, um, anyway,
2: well, I was going to tell you like, um, when I get this Lottie and I'm just gonna give you the like there's gonna be, let's see, I gotta go ahead and tell you what you're gonna get, okay? Oh hell yeah. So I'm gonna have duplicates of Pledge Night, I'm gonna have duplicates of Mausoleum, and I'm gonna have duplicates of Spookies.
1: Hell yeah. So I don't I don't those. have I don't have any of those. So Yeah. I actually have a duplicate that you may not have that you can have if you want is um Mikey. Do you have that one?
2: No, I do not. That's one of those MVP ones, though, isn't it? Or yeah. MVP. and
1: it's still sealed. I ordered it from uh, Deep Discount, and they sent me two copies of it. So I'm like, hell, that's pretty cool." <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but yeah, I was like, "Thank you." So, but I haven't seen you in like a year, so I don't know. It might be a while. Hopefully, we can get together and do some stuff for you know season of the Spooks, everybody, or season of Spooks. Everybody's excited about that so like
2: i've lost all track of since january when all this shit really started to happen
1: yeah i mean it's what i can't get though is people's like people are like oh i can't wait for this year to be over with what well, do you think it's fucking this year once it's over with it's going to change <laughs> anything
2: <laughs> yeah buddy when it's a new year it's like it's all forgotten about
1: hey let me tell you something november the third we will find out if there's going to be any fucking change next year. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, fuck Yeah, I'm not going to go there, but because, you know, it it, it is divided. The dead pit universe is kind of divided as well. So vote who, for yeah. who you want to vote for, but fucking vote. That's all I want to say.
2: Right. As long as you vote for Trump, because everybody knows that's the one you should vote for.
1: Yeah. Man, the shit's in his pants. <laughs> you said, oh, whatever. I, I'm not going to get off on it, but
2: yeah i just think it's funny but okay yeah
1: fuck him so um <laughs> what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a break though do you have anything else you want to any other purchases or anything sarah got Ca- <laughs> no. she got the casper steelbook i didn't tell you well, about fuck
2: it yeah. <laughs> i've actually seen that movie probably within the last two or three months again uh. i've seen it since i was a kid i think
1: i actually prefer casper to uh, hocus pocus hocus pocus i can't fucking watch it i'm sorry
2: can't believe you in fucking hoax pokes
1: fuck it movie
2: yeah so. well i will say this the only thing i'll say is there's a lot right now of 22 screen factory blu-rays on ebay that uh i'm looking at <laughs> like if i get that then we'll definitely have something to talk about
0: yeah
1: you don't have all 22 of them or you need me to go in with you on it i might i might do that
2: well, let's see. I think out of all these on here, I'm looking at them. Let's go through them real quick. Sure. Uh, let's see. Robocop 2, Ghost Story.
1: Does, does it end Friday by Friday night? at least, though?
2: Uh, It ends in six days.
1: Oh, well, you might have people competing with you.
2: <laughs> you mentioned... My damn name, I uh.
0: uh,
2: Big Trouble in Little China, 10 to Midnight, Pet Cemetery 2, Teen Wolf, The Entity. Uh, Idle Hands, 13 Ghosts, Urban Legends, Starman, April Fool's Day, My Bloody Valentine, In the Mouth of Madness, Child's Play, Death Becomes Her, Sleepaway Camp, Summer Party Massacre, Tales from the Hood, Ghost Story, and Robocop 2. Wow. That's quite the lot. How
1: much is it right now, by the way? I'm just curious.
2: $228.
1: Jesus Christ
2: with six days left well some of this stuff i
1: guess is out of print right if it's got slip covers on it now that just brings that brings it up a whole different level
2: well i think they're (laughs) mostly sealed
1: oh shit okay so that'll probably go for way more than even like that'll probably go for four or five hundred dollars i would say
2: that's insane man who holds on to that many fucking blu-rays that are sealed like that
1: (sighs) i don't know there's some weirdos on um like, on YouTube that I've seen that do not open anything. They just buy Yeah, I remember that one
2: guy that, like, bought, like, multiple copies of everything and then, like, kept one of them sealed, or two or three of them sealed all the time.
1: There's one guy, I don't know him, so I can mention him. I think his name is, like, Toy Collector or something like that on YouTube. And he buys, like, different... I think he buys one copy to open and then like steel books and digi books and like alternate artwork for like, I don't know. He's got like 15 different versions of fucking little mermaid or something, you know? I mean something just crazy. Yeah. So
2: I don't know, man, who
1: knows, but I uh, mean,
2: it's hard to find a deal on anything unless you buy it in a lot. And even then, like sometimes you pay out. The
1: yeah. So, um, we'll kick it to a break Uncle Bill and we will get Slippy on the line to talk about some Anchor Bay good enough baby so I can't sleep yeah it's gonna be fun we will be back here on
2: deadpit.com you know what Uncle Bill shut your fucking mouth right now
1: no I wanna talk about Fast Custom Shirts holy shit well let's talk about it fastcustomshirts.com provides some of the best horror t-shirts I have ever fucking seen
2: I don't think that you can really fully appreciate how awesome the t-shirts are over at fastcustomshirts.com until you go over to fastcustomshirts.com and look for yourself
1: Yeah. the hitman t-shirt Joe Mm -hmm. the highest quality of shirts that I've actually designed some of Uncle Bill he actually lets the fans design some of the shirts for
2: his side who else does that who else nobody I know of but when he's not busy playing with uh, Carmen Opposite he's busy cranking out some of the most high quality fucking shirts that you're going to find this side of any other damn whore t-shirt maker Yeah. so check them out FastCustomShirts.com the
1: best there is The best there was. And the best there ever will be.
2: It's about respect.
0: Hey now, motherfuckers. Put your hands up in the fucking air. It's after dark, bitch. Midnight, night,
3: Saturday night. Dead pit, all sucky, sucky now. It's dead pit after dark. Dead pit after dark. The creepy Kentucky motherfucker. Uncle Bill, motherfucker. Mama, Jenny, motherfucker. Dead pit after fucking dark. Dead pit after dark after dark after dark after dark.
0: Hi,
3: this is Bill Lustig, director of Maniac. You are listening to
0: DeadPit.com. Dead pit after dark.
1: Howdy folks and welcome back to Dead Pit Radio. Dead Pit Revival Podcast, whatever the hell you want to call it. I need to come up with just just call it Dead Pit, I guess, Uncle Bill. What do you think?
2: It don't matter what you call it, it's always the same old shit.
1: You say potato, I say tomato. Potato right. Potato. So we're still waiting on Sleepy. He's probably fell asleep again, so um <laughs> we'll just that. we'll just cut back to to sleepy when he calls or he texts, we will uh, get him on the line. But we're just going to talk briefly about and, and a lot of this stuff that I didn't realize about the company. So we were doing a little bit of research, you know, to Wikipedia it. Um, and we're going to talk about kind of the history of Anchor Bay Entertainment. Um, I know for me, that was one of the big studios, probably the major studio, that got me into collecting home media uh, pretty hardcore when I was, what, 20, 19, 20 years old. Um, yeah. And I think it's the same way for you, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was the first... I would I would say that was the first cult studio for any kind of, like, home media. The one that... I mean, it may not have been the first, but it was definitely the most well-recognized and the one that, like, caught everybody's attention.
1: Right. Some of the aspects of Anchor Bay that I didn't realize is I had heard that, you know, originally it was known as Video Treasures, and they did VHS releases back in the mid to late 80s. Right. And I think they were, like, budget VHS releases, if I'm not mistaken, like they would do... um, I have a couple of them, uh, star maker entertainment was another label that they'd used. So like they were selling, do you remember, this was probably in the late eighties, like budgets, like you would see, um, three stooges, VHS tapes at like big lots or something at the time, like Yeah, cheaply made. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that they were, do- they were doing that and some, some cult horror uh releases as well a lot of the vhs tapes are poor, you know cheaply made um they probably don't work now <laughs> they're like the really light cassette tapes like we get wrestling tapes like that too so yeah they were making the, the I mean, budget stuff
2: Anger bay was kind of like the mule creek entertainment of its day i mean before when it was video treasures and stuff
1: yeah and um so like They, the Anchor Bay entertainment name started in 95. I wasn't really familiar with the name that much until I think the VHS tapes in, I would get like VHS horror titles in Suncoast video back when Suncoast video were in the malls and, um, in North America, at least I think that Suncoast is still around, like up in Canada in some form. Um, but the original Suncoast video in the mall, like in pretty much every mall in Kentucky, there was a Suncoast video. So, and that was kind of the place to go. And that was probably the first time I remember seeing the Anchor Bay logo and, and, and looking at the, some of their products.
2: Yeah. And that was back when you had the catalogs and stuff too, that used to come that were really the only way that you could tell what new stuff like home media was getting released was through those kind of catalogs that got released this was like right around the time too when i think you and me would have first gotten the internet like that too right so prior prior to that you would have been using those catalogs and i remember those things like it was yesterday when they would come in um but you're right suncoaster was like the main store to buy anything like vhs or dvd around that time
1: yeah i mean um this was pre-dvd for me i know Anchorbase started making DVDs really, really early though. So we were looking at some really early releases from them. And, um, one of their first releases was the original DVD prom night. And I think all these came out in not ni- DVD didn't even come out until 97. So these releases are in like late 97, yep. which is crazy. We were still in high school at this point. So I'm pretty sure I never even heard of DVD until at least a couple of years later. Well,
2: you got to think about it too, like this. Like, at that time, that's when Scream came out, was 96. Right. And right at that time, so, I mean, I, I vividly remember Scream being on VHS. So, I don't think that we either had DVDs, or it would have been right around the time when that would have started to shift, you know?
1: Yeah, I think it was, like I said, probably another two or three years before... A lot of the mainstream studios were even releasing their movies on DVD. So at this point in '97, and we're going to talk to Slippy about this because I'm thinking he wasn't a part of the company until a little bit later. But it, it seems crazy how 1997 they were producing special edition DVD releases, um, like they had released um, a little bit later on than that Halloween. They did, like, the 30th anniversary of Halloween at the time, or what was it, the 20th? It It'd been the 20th anniversary of Halloween.
2: At that time? Yeah. yeah, at
1: that time. And Hellraiser and stuff like that. And we're talking about 97, 98 era. Yep. They were doing this stuff way ahead of their time. Um, and we're going to go over... We've got the entire list of everything Anchor Bay ever released. So we're going to go over that a little bit later on. But it's kind of like looking at this company and all that it achieved and accomplished and is, in my opinion, it's a big reason we have companies like screen factory and arrow video and, uh, you know, companies like that, uh, Savern films. Now, um, I think if it wasn't for anchor Bay doing this, I mean, this stuff, they were kind of coming up with this on the fly. These limited edition sets, which we'll talk about that as well and uh, just special releases that came out way, way before anything else like this was even conceived in anybody's yeah. mind.
2: And I'm, I know you remember this too. Like they're the ones that really started to come out with those things like the
1: tens,
2: the limited edition 10 right. of like Hellraiser. I mean, like they had to be one of the first companies to think of things like that for horror movies And now it's like
1: everybody's doing
2: that. Right. Everything has a gimmick now.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I know when we started doing the Dead Pit show in two thousand, late 2005, early 2006, it was kind of... The pinnacle for us was getting review screeners from Anchor Bay Entertainment. Now, this was kind of... And we want to go through the history a little bit later on, but... Anchor Bay went through a couple of different, uh, incarnations, I guess. Um, but this was still when it was like, it seemed to me it was still the classic Anchor Bay entertainment, right? When we started doing the dead pit show and it kind of shifted, uh, about a year later, it seems like, um, things kind of changed, um, for the company and they changed ownership a couple of different times. Um, but man, as far as the time frame, the, it's almost like they invented this stuff. There was no, there was nothing like this going on. I mean, you had your really small companies. Uh, I think Synapse was doing Laserdiscs at the time. Um, what were some more companies out? Maybe Elite Entertainment or something like that was out in the early, early DVD days.
2: Elite, yeah. Yeah. That's the only one that I can really think of that was like coming out with that kind of market specialty product like that around the same time. Right. So. Word, man. Like, yeah, I mean, to me, being around at that place at Anchor Bay at that time, which would have been late 90s, early 2000s, would be akin to being around like Nintendo in the early 80s or, you know right it was just they were doing shit that was revolutionary
1: yeah i mean the thing is is like a lot of people nowadays probably don't and and that's kind of why i wanted to do something like this because it was such a like when i first got a dvd player in the year it was the year the year 2000 actually um the summer of 2000 and i was because i remember i would go in suncoast video I had a VCR is all I had, so... But I would look at all these cool horror titles that they had. Um, you know, Anchor Bay stuff, they had the Lucio Fulci collection. They had a lot of classic. Um, you could see, like, Salem's Lot and Carrie and and all this stuff on DVD. I was like, oh, man, awesome. It's all digital, you know. So when I was, like I said, I was 20 years old, and we got our first DVD player... City Living Dead, like you were talking about earlier, that was one of the very first DVDs that I ever bought. I think City Living Dead and Carrie were the two. Like, um, Suncoast was the only big store you could get DVDs at at that time that I can remember. I know Walmart didn't have them then.
2: Yeah, no, I, I did Walmart... I think around that time, Walmart was really, like, censor-heavy because that was, okay, if you think about that time, I can remember this, like, that was a time period when Metallica would have released Load, and that was when they censored the album cover, and they wouldn't release the album at Walmart, and there was a big, like, you know, blow-up about that, and that was also when stores like that just would not carry any kind of explicit material. Right. And so you wouldn't have seen anything like that around that time. No.
1: And, and just the, the artwork, like anchor Bay would typically use the poster art, um, the original theatrical poster art for their covers. So see the living dead's got, and it was known as gates of hell when it came out, um, originally, but it's got some of the most awesome artwork ever. And I think that's what kind of drew me to it. And the back of the, the back of the DVD has the, uh, the guy getting the drill drill through the skull from uh yeah. gates of hell so there was no way I was not picking that up and both of those like i said 29.99 a piece so yeah they were pricey then man i think you could get them a little bit cheaper occasionally on amazon they would have you know you could get them for maybe around 20 25 dollars sometimes but Around that particular time period, Jesus Christ, they were coming out with some of the coolest shit Um, imaginable Italian horror stuff, classic horror stuff, some special, you know, that you mentioned the limited edition 10s that they did. And those were sought after up until today, really. I mean, there's, I've got three or four of them that are still sealed that I've kind of collected over the years. And the sealed ones really go for a pretty decent amount of money, even, you know, even now with all the additions that's come out since then.
2: Yeah, I remember, um, I can remember looking at that DVD, the one of Sea Living Dead, like when you got it, it's like one of those pivotal moments too, when you're just like, back when you were really excited to see anything like that. And you just, it's it's always going to be etched in my memory. But right around that time too, probably around like, 98 to 2000, like, there was a kid, and I know you remember me talking about this kid, his name was Boogie, they called him Boogie, his real name was Hayden, and he was the only other guy that I know that uh, had anything to do with horror movies, and he had, like, a a tote of all these DVDs, or it may have been VHS, VHS or DVDs, I can't remember now, but, like, it was all the Anchor Bay stuff right around that time, He's the only guy that I knew that had anything like that. He
1: would go back and forth to Lexington and stuff and get right. that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine um, around that time period, pre-2000, the DVD players were probably very, very expensive. I think when we got ours, I think my dad had paid like, it was like 350 bucks or something like that at Circuit City. Remember Circuit City?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was uh, – I have fond memories of that time, man, because – You know, you were kind of, it was the first chance you had to kind of rediscover these movies. And and the transfers looked so much better than what you had seen previously. Um, And a lot of the Italian movies, um, you know, they did the Fulci collection, the Argento collection. They did a lot of stuff, you know, Lomberto Bava stuff. Um, Those were kind of impossible to find, you know, unless you... yeah. You ordered the, the VHS tapes online or, um, you know, on a catalog, like you mentioned. I mean, you a lot of these movies we were discovering for the very first time. So I think that, that today a lot of people really don't, younger people don't have a grasp on that. Like just what that experience was like. Um, because pre-DVD, either the movies looked like shit. They were, you know, you had them on the old school I think widescreen TVs were first starting to to come out around this time as well. So like you're really getting the experience of watching these movies all cleaned up digital. Um, and it was really like a great time, like 2000, I would say from the years 2000 to 2004, 2005, just an amazing time to be a horror movie fan, uh, watching some of these old movies on DVD. A lot of them coming right from anchor Bay, pretty much all of them.
2: Yeah, I think that's something too that people don't realize now is like how exciting that was. I would think it would be like like I never grew I grew up at this time, but I wasn't like a part of this. But like they talk about the old tape traders when like metal came out in the '80s, and you had all these people that were like black market trading these tapes and like the kind of releases of live concerts and things like that. Like that's kind of how it felt to me. Like it was something that was exciting. Like you weren't supposed to have this stuff. And before then, nobody had really seen this stuff unless you saw it in a movie theater in, like, New York or something. I mean, we never would have ever seen this stuff coming into a theater because our theaters would have shown, like, two movies and they would have been the most popular movies that would have been out at that time. So the only way that we're going to see anything like this is going to be if somebody like a cult company releases them on VHS or or DVD and that's what happened. It was was insane. It's like, you know your first experience with all these different films you've never seen. And like this whole other genre of movies, like these Italian movies, I'd never heard of Fulci or Argento or, you know, Bob or any of those people until Anchor Bay.
1: So we can go through some of the releases. Like I said, we have all of them on here, uh, from the get go. I mean, from the early VHS days, from the eighties on, um, the first DVD Anchor Bay ever released. you are got to remember, DVDs came out, I think, in March of that year. April the 4th of 97, The, the Car came out with James Brolin. Um, that summer on August 28th, Elvira Mistress of the Dark, September the 10th of 97, the first DVD as a collector's edition of Dawn of the Dead
2: came out do you remember man like that dvd was worth a fortune forever too like after it came out
1: yeah there was a couple of them that were um that was the theatrical version no that was the director's cut so yeah yeah, i think that was the one was that the one with like the the multi-color artwork if i'm not mistaken I,
2: i think so yeah like that was the one that had like it was a picture of the, the cover, but it had like all these frames on it. Like, and they were all different colors. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah like stained glass type design. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was, that was one that, um, let me look here. Um, I, I know that that was going for major cash. Um, did they ever come out with that in between that special edition? That's what I'm looking up. That box set.
2: I don't think so, um, but I don't think so either. Cause I, that would have been 2004, wouldn't it? When they came out with that box set.
1: Yeah. I'm looking on here. I'm not seeing it. Um, Jesus Christ. They come out with so much stuff. It's wild. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's crazy that Donna dead on DVD came out and said, we were, uh, just going in their senior year of high school when that came out. <laughs> yeah. So it just doesn't seem like that could be possible really, does it? No. I think that's but, yeah. insane.
2: But, yeah. It was like twenty years ago.
1: So I mean, later on that next year in ninety eight they released more stuff, um, including like the the um Blind Dead movies, the Evil Dead, they actually released Evil Dead two first. Um, and then like the Hellraiser, uh, Hellraiser two and, um, cue the wing Serpent stuff like that. So, I mean, they were way ahead of their game on, for one thing, doing these, this was just not done. These genre, you know, cult movies and putting them out on the newest format going, I know they elite entertainment and synapse were doing laser discs and stuff at the time. LaserDisc was probably a little bit more, um, out there, you know, and readily available. You're talking about acre bay releasing a DVD, a a genre DVD, a month after the damn format came you know, began. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing that I, one of the things that I really didn't, didn't realize that they were that far ahead of the curb of everybody else.
2: And that, I mean, they must've just gone all in on that format to try to make, you know, to just make it being that small of a company. But I got to say, like, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at the same list you're looking at now. And I, you know, I would love to talk to somebody in particular about <laughs> not, who nineteen nineteen ninety nine, 1999, because have you seen the shit that comes up? 99. Yeah, they him. really
1: go ape shit. in 99.
2: Like, that's when you get like, just think about this for a second, because up to this point, Like I said, I don't think either one of us had any kind of exposure to these guys. But in 99, they released the Dario Argento collection, which is basically all of his best films. And also at that same time, that same year, they released the Fulci collection, which is basically all his best films. So that's crazy that that year, we're talking, you know, 21 years ago, that they released all that stuff.
1: I'm going to fucking call Felcher on the damn phone. I'm not to wake his ass up.
2: It would be nice to see, like, what the fuck? Like, what was going on? Like, where did that come from?
1: See if you can hear it on here. I guarantee he's asleep. God. Hello, you've reached Michael felt's cell phone. I'm not here. Hence the recording. Please leave your message after the beep. He's had that same... ...and I will get back to you. I promise. He's had that same voicemail for like 15 years. Hey, Slippy, where the hell you at? Didn't fall asleep again. Let hey, you know. when you
2: wake up, uh, would you do me a favor and tell me about the year 1999 at Acre Bay?
1: Uncle Bill Where was. all that
2: shit came from, that's a pretty killer
1: year. You got, you got cut off there. Well, let's just say that Slippy has fell asleep again, so we'll have to continue this on uh, uh, without uh, him, I think. <laughs> what the hell, Sleepy? Hey, this is sort of a big deal. It's the first show, Dead Pit show, that we're doing for Season of Spooks. And he's no-showing yeah. it. <laughs> God, does He's he not no show does he not want to get spooky? Well
2: in the season
1: of spooks. Yeah. So but yeah, I mean going I back want to going back. So ninety nine was fucking like crazy. like they started with the Dario Argento collection. Right. And they released um all these were separate, I think, right? And they uh Tenebrae, yeah. Demons, Demons 2, Phenomena. Yeah. So all those were released on March the 16th. Um, And they do release, like, that's the one weird thing about the original Anchor Bay, is they would do these cult horror movies, but they would also do, like, these just bizarre shit, like, um, I'm looking on here... They had Cluster of the, we- uh, the West, Condor Man. I know they released, like, they had a lot of Gallagher DVDs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the Smashing uh, uh, Watermelon Yeah,
2: Yeah, I remember Gallagher.
1: So, um, yeah, they did do a lot of weird, wacky stuff along the way as well. Anchor Bay did. Like, they had the Highlander sets and Threes Company and stuff like that. But um,
2: then they also had like in the middle of all that too. They would have like Alice, Sweet Alice, which is an amazing film that nobody even still.
1: Right. I think. Um, I think Arrow has I think that a, time
2: would know about it at all.
1: Yeah, I think Arrow finally released it on Blu-ray. That one's is one of them that's in that sale. But yeah, Alice, Sweet Alice, for a long time there, that DVD was out of print and was going for big bucks too. I think.
2: Yeah. And Hell Night, which is the Linda Blair, you know, kind of her slasher film from the '80s that nobody really remembered. Uh,
1: yeah, Hell Night. Hell Knight was another one that there's there's a few on here that still never come back out on anything, but Hell Night was one that w- that was that way up until a couple years ago. Uh, Screen Factory finally did re-release it on Blu-ray. So,
2: yeah. But then you got the Fulci collection, which comes out like a couple months later, which the New York Reaper's in it, and I'm fairly certain that around that time is when uh, the Beyond and those movies had to come out, too. They're pretty close behind that.
1: Yeah, the Beyond, and uh, they did a lot, like House by the Cemetery was later on, they did that as well. So, I mean, another aspect that I was just thinking about, Around this time period when I was, um, I mean, this is close to around the time period when I got into, into DVDs and stuff. Um, I wasn't working or anything. I was going to school and there was this site. I cannot remember the name of it, like freeride.com or something like that. Or you remember those point and click sites where you would just click ads and you would get points Yeah, and shit. So I think it was freeride dot com if I'm not mistaken. I have to. I
2: think you're right. I think I'm mad.
1: Yeah. So this is how I got a lot of those movies back then. I didn't have any fucking money of my own, Harvey. Or very little, and um, I could click enough little ads on that website on freeride dot com. And one of the cash outs was Anchor Bay twenty five dollar gift card. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You remember this? So. A lot of the stuff that was coming out around that time period, I just, you know, I would take about a, it would take about uh, a week to get the $25 gift card. And I could get one DVD for that <clears throat> usually. So this was around the time when all this stuff was coming out. Like you had mentioned, um, like around the end of 99, you had the nightmares that came out, uh, New York Ripper Halloween. So this would have been like a little bit, later than that but by that time you had like more of the Fulci stuff I know one that I remember vividly that I'd purchased um, that was a blind buy was the Beyond on DVD uh, using that gift card so there was a lot of movies that I'd purchased um, and got completely for free
2: way back then so yeah that's insane though and then like I think were they really kind of went all in, was at the end of 99 when they did the Halloween uh, two-disc limited edition DVD. That's when, like, that probably caught... that. All this other stuff before then was mostly just, like, cult stuff, but Halloween is kind of the movie everybody knows. So...
1: It was the first of many Halloween... Well, I think they released Halloween on VHS before.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but as far yeah. as DVDs, like... That's one constant with the history of that company is, yes. Jesus Christ, like up until the last, I think it was the last Halloween set they were a part of. I think Anchor Bay had something to do with that. So, um, well, I would be... They well, paid
2: for the licensing for Halloween, but they got their money's worth out of it. They released them things like a million times.
1: And they kept, they were good sailors though, so... Yeah. I guess you bring that sort of thing out. And they had good distribution. I mean, they were out at that point they were out in Walmart. So um I can remember late ninety nine, early two thousand, like it seemed like it, it started getting more mainstream. The, even the they realized around, you know, September, October, um, Walmart would put out like horror VHS tapes and stuff like that. So I think Anchor Bay maybe started with that. And then as the DVD format got more and more popular, um, you know, as the years went on, they would bring, you know, a couple of the big anchor Bay titles out at Walmart, like the Halloween uh, DVD and Hellraiser and stuff like that. So,
2: yeah, this is pretty funny footnote that I would have never known. Uh, The Halloween, their release of Halloween uh, on VHS came out on my birthday, my 17th birthday.
1: So, yeah, they, um, all the presses were goodwill. I came a hair of buying it just for, but I mean, like, I'm like, fuck it. Why would I, why do I really need this? It was one of the early um, Halloween 4 VHS tapes that Anchor Bay did. I'm thinking it was probably like 1998 or something like that when it come out. Yeah. And they just had that the other day. So I thought that was kind of interesting. We were planning on doing this show and I saw that there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, they, Anchor Bay really, really kicked it into high gear, um, starting in 2000 and pretty much all the way about two and a half, three years of just crazy releases, one right after another. And, um, another nostalgia. Mm.
3: You
1: you okay? What was that? I.
3: Yeah, what was that?
1: Did you finally wake up sleepy?
3: No, I've been here the whole time.
1: Oh, bullshit.
3: That'd be so cute if that was true.
1: <laughs> He's just listening to us. We don't have any cameras on or anything, so you're good. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, okay. We're just doing the audio deal because Uncle Bill's... Well, we both kind of have that tin can internet, so...
3: Oh, the little hamster in the wheel of shit. Yeah, we don't
1: want we don't want to push it. You know the audio sounds good enough.
2: Sleepy. Yeah, you son of a bitch. Hey.
1: <laughs> so we're <laughs> we were in the middle though. We're talking about and what year? I'm thinking this is still before you actually started working for Anchor Bay. We're talking about mm-hmm. 99 2000 era. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I started working there in July of
1: 2000. Okay. So it's perfect. Perfect timing. Yeah. Your nap didn't affect it that much. So (laughs) the, um, what I was talking about though, is it seems like anchor Bay from really from 2000 on maybe 2003, 2004 was just like, it seemed like every week there was just a large amount of shit that I wanted to get. And, um, like they were just starting, kind of, with the Dario Argento collection, and um, the original blue or the original DVD of Martin, which ended up being like kind mm. of a collector's item there for a while too. There were a few that were like that. Um, oh yeah, and that one still hasn't come out on Blu-ray, has it?
3: No, Martin has had yeah a couple DVD releases, but no Blu-ray. Although Second Sight will be doing that for next year finally. So, oh god, that's good.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a very underrated Romero movie. Nobody ever talks about that, even still to this day.
3: No, it's one of the ones
2: that deserves more attention, for sure. Here's what I want to know, though, about Anchor Bay. Like, where the hell do these people come from? Because like this, <laughs> this company was like way ahead of its time in terms of releasing cult movies, and especially on DVD, which wasn't really even a thing at that time. No. Well...
3: You know, it, it, there's a lot of factors that came into it, because the company was sort of born out of the ashes of a couple of uh, sort of, uh, you know, kind of low-rent uh, EP kind of like rack-jobber kind of companies like uh, Star Maker Home Video and Video Treasures. Um, and the company, as far as I'm concerned, if you really need to point to why Anchor Bay was Anchor Bay, it's because of one gentleman whose name was Jay Douglas.
1: And, um, was he kind of like the financial backer or just the brains behind it? or what? No,
3: he was, Jay was an employee. Jay had a long history in sales and in the record industry. And, uh, he was, you know, and he, became a part of uh, uh, sort of his vision that directed the release of several of those like the letterbox versions of those movies on VHS early on the types of movies that were coming on he would make handshake deals to you know re- release a lot of great cult titles like you know the evil dead and titles like that I mean, he he was the one who really had the the vision to turn what could have just been another video company releasing a bunch of stuff into a label And it was, uh, I I can't imagine, if he wasn't around, that company never would have become, never would have done what it did. It was that he saw an opportunity to do something with a label that the the parent company, which was called the Handelman Company at the time, for several years it was the Handelman Company, which was another Michigan company, they were the that would uh, supply CDs into Walmart and stuff like that. They were sort of a mid-range, sort of a middleman distributor uh, between the Entertainment. They would always look at Anchor Bay and their success and go, "We don't get these weirdos, but we're very happy to cash the checks."
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: uh, so they tended to leave us alone for the most part. I mean, there was always some sort of, you know, make sure the budgets are in on time and what are you doing with this and that, so forth. But at the end of the day, it was always just sort of like, "We don't know exactly what they're up to over there, but you know, every year they get make more, make more and more money. So let's not look into it too much." Okay. And uh, Jay enjoyed that. Jay enjoyed that kind of environment when he could. I mean, he always. Jay Jay needed someone to rebel against, so he always had a problem with the corporate suits. You know, the the oh, they they don't want me to do this and stuff like that. And oh, those guys and they don't have any soul over there. And there's just it's just a machine. And you know, he was a he was a hippie man. He was just he was a grown-up hippie. And uh, uh, but it was his it was his overriding vision for the company is what made it what it was. And the reason that I went there was because of what he wanted to do. I saw it from, you know, from the sidelines and I was just like, I want a piece of whatever it is. These guys are doing over there because it was so cool and so unique and no one else was doing anything quite like that. And uh, so if you have to point to any one person who was really the, the reason that the company was what it was, it was, it was him.
2: Hmm. So was he, because it looks like around like two, Mm-hmm. Colt it was that him?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that was happening before then too. I mean, the the company, you know, I first became aware of the company when I was working at a video distributor, and I started seeing these tapes coming in, like this gatefold release of uh, Maniac and uh, Spider Baby, and all these films. I was like, what the hell's going on? What is this company, Anchor Bay Entertainment? Because it was coming in in the in the same category as the stuff that used to be Star Maker and Video Treasures. I'm like, what the hell is this? And so Jay was there before all that, doing all that, uh, even in the early days. And then Anchor Bay was actually one of the first companies to put out DVDs. They were, you know, certainly one of the, I think the first independent company to do it. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, he was always just the one saying, if it's cool, let's try this. And, you know, and and he gravitated certainly towards the horror and the cult titles because that's where the weird movies were, you know, and that's where the, the oddball ones and the movies that were left out. Uh, he had a real, he had a predilection for the horror films, definitely for cult comedies, uh, for sort of uh, late 60s, early 70s cult films, race car dramas, stuff like that. I mean, he had a real affinity for it. He had such great instincts in terms of what the collect—what the collector's mentality was. And, uh, you know, the the tin editions that we did and all the weird packaging and stuff like that, can't get anywhere else and you know that's why i think anchor bay for those years that we certainly for the years i was there uh we just passed so many cool things that no one saw coming
2: yeah i wanted to ask you about that too because we were just talking like at that time you know early 2000s probably the only place you could get anything like that like would be through catalogs and things like that for us but mm-hmm. and it was, we were, I was talking about how it was exciting when you saw even like the covers of these movies because we would have never seen anything like that if no. it hadn't been for like a, you know, a distributor like that. So was it as exciting to work in that? Like, what was that like? <laughs> in that time? You know, the thing is,
3: in retrospect, yes, it absolutely was. At the time, you know, when you're at a job like that and you're in the office doing work and answering emails and stuff, a lot of it's just like any other job. You know, you're... You're doing marketing meetings and, you know, uh, putting together proposals and making phone calls and answering emails and stuff like that. But then, you would you know, every day there'd be something like, hey, we just acquired this movie. Have you ever heard of it? It's like, what? Oh, my God. Or we get a packaging sample or an idea or we see routings for covers. And, uh, you know, we hear it's like, oh, we're going to do this movie. Oh, they got this guy to participate. So. It had all the trappings on the surface of being sort of a regular nine-to-five office job. But then that was a title we pursued for almost two years before we finally got to get it because the company that owned it didn't realize they owned it. And then we got to try this new packaging out. That, and then like the Book of the Dead, that was almost a year-long process. So there's a lot of drudgery involved but the end result was something incredibly special. And so you still it, it was it was again there's there's a lot of the trappings of what a normal jo- what "quote unquote" a normal job was but you were dealing with stuff that was just immeasurably cool and it felt like certainly for me at the time it felt like I was really contributing to something important and that yeah. that that tends to override any kind of day-to-day kind of monotony that will come up although but that in retrospect with that company there wasn't I was I was happy to go to work every single day you know there was never I, I can't remember a single day where I ever got up and went oh God I really hate this place I, it never happened uh, towards the end the company was changing a little bit and so I was kind of like I'm not sure what my place is here anymore but you know at the end of the day that just kind of happens but for the, the year the, the especially for the the First three years, almost three and a half years, I was there. It was a very, very special time.
1: Yeah, I mean that's what we were talking about. It seemed like during the early, early years, a lot of this stuff is kind of experimental in a way. Because, like you said, Anchor Bay was one of the very first companies to make DVDs. I was looking on here. I, I never knew that they were coming out with them like a month after the format debuted yeah yeah so they
3: did i think i want to say halloween and dawn of the dead were two of the first ones they put out right um and they were not in retrospect they were terrible releases quality wise but no one knew how to you know no one knew how to encode dvds back then really you know it was all it was that it's hard for people to believe that but there was actually a period where it was like what do we do with this so-called dvd
1: yeah well, I mean, it's uh, the thing with it, too, is is like uh, we, were only, we-, we were only used to VHS, really, at the time. So, I mean, you didn't really have anything to really put it next to. I guess you could, like, digital yeah. TV, maybe. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I mean, Jay had, had a hand in the Laserdisc, and that he got some titles that Anchor Bay was doing licensed over to Elite Entertainment, where Don May was at the time. So, you know, Jay was, even back before DVD finding a way to kind of support the collector's market in a different way. Uh, But then when DVD came up, they were like, okay, well, I think we can take the shot of this on our own. And, you know, it was a little rocky at the beginning, but it was a little rocky for everybody. And, uh, but then once they found their groove, it was just like, oh yeah, we were pumping them out. There was one point there where we were pumping them out on DVD and VHS equally. Uh, and and then very quickly DVD overtook VHS and
2: quickly that happened so bizarre though that that happened that the way that it did it did yeah i kind of like i kind of equate this too because you were talking about don may being an elite and then Mm -hmm. you and him were at anchor bay it's like i know this sounds kind of odd but you know the beginning of like nintendo where you had all these guys that were kind of working for the same companies but it was like a very small niche of people yeah
3: it was it was a very small pond you know at the end of the day and what's as weird is is because a few years before, this was like 95, 96, I think, somewhere in there, there was a signing with George Romero that was held at the Monroeville Mall that was in celebration and promotion of a two-tape set that Anchor Bay had brought out of uh, Dawn of the Dead back then. It had like a gatefold cover on it, and it had two tapes in it. And you could buy it there at the mall, and then George would sign it, or you would sign whatever else you had. And at that at that signing that day, Jay Douglas was there, Don May was there, his partner was there, and three other film friends who would later go on to work in the video industry. Who I would later know were all there, and I never met any of them that day.
0: They were <laughs> exactly.
3: They yeah. they were all they were all there, and it was like, like oh man, I, looking back, it's like, how the hell did that happen? So it's like, it, it, yeah, it's interesting how this small circle of people uh kind of gravitated just naturally just because of, it was like you know gravity just kept drawing us all together over the years before we even knew who the hell
2: each other were yeah it's amazing in a way that 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 group of people would kind of release almost everything that came out like cult wise on any kind of format around that time
3: yeah yeah it was uh and keep in mind this is back the internet was in what could best be described as prehistoric era Yeah. So, you know, some people had email addresses, you know, and it was like there were very rudimentary websites and, like, forums and bulletin boards locally you could go into. I mean, so this wasn't... Yeah, AOL dial-up and all that shit. So this was, like, extremely early on because when I got brought into the company, it was to do their website because prior to me going up there, they didn't have a website. It never occurred to them that they needed one. And that's how, you know, that's how back it's hard for people to imagine back then a company could ever think like that but the internet was still the wild wild west back then so it was it it, i came up there at right around a time when they started utilizing the internet to really communicate better with the fans and to start getting the word out about the releases and that's when the whole kind of business dynamic began to change Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i mean like i said uh that during that classic time period to me i guess 99 2000 all the way to like the pinnacle the way i look at it is the the dawn of the dead box set when it came out in like was the end of 2004 or something like that four yeah it
3: was 2004 that was one of the last big things i worked on there not that that is in any way uh connected to what you may consider the heyday i, I left the company in april of 2005 because the position I had in the company was always kind of a weird one. I had a lot of different responsibilities that normally would have been assigned to certain departments within a corporate structure. Uh, I had, was in charge of the release schedule, the website. I went and made public appearances for the company. I did you know, such and such and acquisitions and marketing. Little by little, as the company was bought by another, another corporation, stepped in and bought the company from Handelman, those responsibilities got it, started getting reassigned to the departments they normally would have been in which left me with very little to do for like the last eight or nine months that I was there. And then one day they just called me into the office and said, Michael, your position's just been kind of phased out. And it was sad, but at the same time I was like, I get it. But the company went on to do a lot of great stuff after that. I was—I just happened to be there during a really great period of time. And I think I made my mark in terms of my contributions. But it was, a, it was an amazing team of people up there that existed before me, during me, and long after me too. So... Mm-hmm. But the company changed. It became less about the catalog titles and about newer stuff that was coming up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the company, because IDET wanted to focus that way. And then later on, when Stars took it over, uh, it became more about, you know, newer titles like The Walking Dead and things like that, and much less about catalog titles.
1: Yeah. And the sad thing, like, we'll talk about, I mean, we're going to definitely go through a few titles here. um, Mm. But, like, the, Anchor Bay just kind of slowly died like that's the sad thing like it just well
3: it, it's it was I, I, you know look it's easy for me to make a comment on what happened to the company from the sidelines and I still knew people had very very close friends that worked with the company right up until the day that they folded up because uh, eventually Lionsgate bought stars and then Lionsgate had its own home entertainment comp you know division they didn't need that and that's what anchor Bay essentially was for stars. So you know that was the end of Anchor Bay, but even before then, I, I always felt, from my perspective, that Anchor Bay sort of forgot its audience. Um, that the audience had been built upon these cult titles and this, you know, rich history, and they had built a label by exposing people to new films that maybe, or even older films they hadn't even heard of. I can't tell you how many people I heard about were buying Anchor Bay title just because they saw the boat on the on the spine. And went, oh, well, oh I, have so, many, I mm-hmm. have so many, I have so co- many titles from this company. I've never heard of this, but I'll take a chance on it. And I think that got lost somewhere along the way. I mean, you can only release catalog titles forever for a certain period of time. And there's, you know, there's going to be a point where you need to start supplementing it with new stuff. And you can only release uh, Army of Darkness five hundred times instead of <laughs> five hundred one. Yeah. But at the end, of, at the end of the day, I just felt like something there was a there was a, a an opportunity to really build a label that was built upon the history of the titles that we brought out like and that just something got lost in the translation i don't know you know but every company that owns anchor bay had a different vision for it and so you know it's it's easy for me to sit back and say that's not what i would have done but i didn't own the company so you know and again a lot of really great people worked in and a lot of great a lot of terrific releases came out After I was there, it wasn't like, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I stopped working there and the place went to shit. That was not at all
2: what happened. Um, Well, here's the really weird thing about that. Right. Like I'm looking on here and something happens in 2005. I don't know what it is, but like what you were saying, like in 2005, it seems like they veered away from the format Mm. of like horror and cult titles. But then in like 2006 and 7, it kind of comes back. So I don't know mm-hmm. if they did that for a year where like, holy shit, like this is not working, or I'm not sure what the shift was there. But no, I back. think it
3: was, I don't think there was ever, it never, it's easy to look back at some of that stuff and go, well, there must have been a decision made here at this point to not do this and go on for it. really wasn't like that. I think a lot of it was just that they knew they didn't want to keep reissuing some of these catalog titles and they wanted newer titles but there might have been a dip there where the stuff that they were wanting to work on just wasn't there yet.
0: Yeah, that's and great. you know, yeah.
3: it's just I, 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 if the company survived, they had a game plan, but so much of it was very flexible, because it would depend on, wow, this title we, we didn't have much faith in suddenly connected. Well, what can we do that's more like that? And or you know, well, you know this this and also another thing that's very important to remember about Anchor Bay was, as successful as horror was. They had enormous success, which almost bankrolled a lot of the, the horror, smaller horror titles. They had a huge children's line, which was bank, you know, with uh, Thomas the Tank Engine primarily, mm-hmm. you know, for years. I mean, that was a huge moneymaker. And they were one of the industry leaders in fitness titles. That was another huge, huge moneymaker for them. So it wasn't just horror and cult titles. Anchor Bay was an incredibly diverse uh, video label that catered to all markets. So, that was a situation where it, you know on the surface like well they were a cult they were a cult horror time yeah well if you were a horror collector of course you were that doesn't right. necessarily mean you bought crunch fitness or that you were a uh, a thomas the tank engine but i have had people tell me say oh i loved anchor bay and it was like yeah me too yeah thomas the tank engine and i'm like oh that's right and so <laughs> it, your your perspective on the company is going to depend on what kind of a buyer you were or what age you were or what you were into so you know, Anchor Bay was always more than just horror and cult titles, but you know, it was uh, it was it was it was always a fascinating, uh, almost schizophrenic company at times, and I think that was one of the things that eventually kind of got lost a little bit. It got a little homogenized on on some level, which I think was inevitable because when you get owned by another corporation that has a vision, then it becomes a part of another big entertainment conglomerate. You know, eventually the product line is going to change and you can't, you have to grow and you have to evolve. It just, from my perspective, it evolved into a direction that wasn't as interesting. But yeah. again, that's not, that's just me talking. But that's, and again, me from the sidelines looking at going what it was compared to what it ended up being. But that didn't mean they didn't do a lot of great work, which they really did. Some of those Walking Dead releases were amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, but it's like you said, like, I mean, if, if that was what you were kind of, Predisposed to, then they would yeah, be yeah. all in that in that realm. Yeah, right? what, and then, then there were
3: some people do. that, but then there were some people that, that were loved. What Anchor Bay eventually became and what the, some of the titles they were doing. So I guess it's really all just a matter of perspective. And I don't, I, I don't sit here and think that you know. I, I think everybody wanted the companies to succeed the best they knew how, and they tried. And, uh, but yeah, there was a disconnect with Anchor Bay at the end from where its past was. I felt. And I don't think there was a deliberate attempt to, I'll just say, well, fuck it, we're done with that. I don't think there was that at all. Um, and there were a lot of still cult titles that they would do. They still did Halloween, Evil Dead. They did uh, Silent Night, Deadly, Night. of the They still had their toe dipped into that, but it just wasn't quite the same. But, you know, again, it, it can't stay the same forever, I suppose.
2: No, but here's, a, here's another part of it, too. Though. Do you think that without Anchor Bay that we would have, or would have had now, I guess, with all this going on, the convention scene that came about been- i think that i uh, you know it's funny those things
3: i my first horror convention was in 1994 in durham raleigh durham north carolina area and i'd never heard of such a thing i was just like i didn't know people i mean it was like a, opening up there's like the doors it's like when Dorothy steps out of the black and white in the Black uh, Wizard of Oz and opens up, and there's Oz in color. That's yes. like me. And that was me, like entering my first horror convention. was like I had no idea such things could be true, and but then there did seem to be at the time that Anchor Bay really began to explode. Uh, horror conventions became a really big thing in the early two thousands. I mean, like just a lot. I don't think Anchor Bay drove that necessarily, but it certainly was part of the the circle of life of that sort of thing because, you know, we were bringing out the movies that were exciting the fans that wanted to go meet the people who made those movies. And, you know, so it kind of, we were part
2: of the food chain there.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, sort,
2: I kind of like, here's the way that I think it kind of helped anyway, is that if it hadn't been for a company like that, like people in our area would have never gotten to see those movies. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. No, I agree. Things, you know, I agree. Uh, it kind of drove that out into, like, the, 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 I don't know what you call this area, like, rural kind of area to, to get people like that to notice and then want to go to conventions. and. Well, th- that was,
3: yeah, that was, I mean, we exposed a lot of people to titles that they would not have been able to see. Otherwise, one of the reasons for that was because we were owned by a music distributor that had inns to Walmart, Kmart, and all these stores, we were able to get a lot of our titles into areas that some of the other distributors or companies never would have been able to do so, or would have been able to convince those companies to carry. I mean, I mean, being able to see this, the, uh, you know, Evil Dead and Dawn of the Dead on the shelves of Kmart was a very surreal thing back then because it was just like, what, really? And, you know, it was, it ended up being something where Anchor Bay just had an in and found a way to get their titles out to, everywhere, not just, like, the big cities, but, like, everywhere all across the country. And then they had Anchor Bay UK, they had Anchor Bay Canada. I mean, it was, they were incredibly effective in finding their audience wherever they were.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: Also, do you think, you know, looking back now at all the genre companies, do you think any of these companies would be, I'm sure there would be genre companies of some sort. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anchor Bay kind of led the way. Do you think that there were, it would be the, like the limited edition thing kind of started with Anchor oh, Bay? Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Right, so. Anchor Bay was definitely a trailblazer in many regards. And I think certainly the approach you see in companies like Screen Factory and so forth are very much modeled on what Anchor Bay kind of first threw down back in the day. But we would still have company like, you know, Synapse Films would still exist because Don May was around before. Uh, Bill Lustig, who was. Actually, a big part of Anchor Bay for many number of years, he would have still been out there bringing out a lot of these titles, and Blue Underground certainly would have still existed. But Blue Underground, he learned a lot of lessons, from, you know, when he doing Blue Underground, he that he learned at Anchor Bay, because that you know Bill was our production manager for Anchor Bay for several years,
0: yeah. and
3: so you know they, a lot of like I said, just a lot of people contributed to what that company's approach was. But him, you know, and it's, like I mentioned, Jay Douglas. They just found a way to make you want this thing, even if you had never necessarily heard of this movie or whatever. But it made you want to go. What is that? That looks really cool, and that and that was a, a that's certainly a mantra a lot of uh, cult video companies and smaller labels and niche distributors have adopted since then. I see a lot of the uh, I see a lot of Anchor Bay's DNA kind of spread out in a lot of these other companies, and I think that's just a natural thing. And it it just reminds me that. God damn, this was 20 years ago.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, I moved to Michigan in July of 2000. That's just a little over 20 years ago. I moved up here to take that job. And it, at times, it seems like I just got here. And then other times, it's like, no, it feels like 20 years. No, it definitely. <laughs> it the, but so we, actually,
1: we had a lot of people. Like, I'd, I'd posted a, uh, a thread on the, on the Facebook page. Yeah. You know, just um Anchor Bay Memories or some of your favorite releases and stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. And there
1: was one that uh Tim Goodall posted on here. Um and it really took me back a little bit too because it's not Best Buy is not this way right now. Um he says he loved to go and be able to find all those titles in Best Oh yeah. yeah. We man, would so- go
3: about, oh that's the, I'm trying to interrupt but we would do that too. Like we we had major releases that come out a lot of us would go Tuesday and just stay there and go to Best Buy and wander around the aisles and watch and see if people bought our titles. Like Right. <laughs> I remember when near dark, I'll never forget near dark day when that's treated. Uh, it was me and my uh, friend, Mike Ortiz, who was a who later become the head of graphics at the uh, anchor Bay, but at that time was one of the lead designers and had designed uh, near dark. And that had been a real, real imaginative fun process for the, for the both of us just getting that whole thing done. And we're just we're looking at the aisles and, we're just like, oh, my God, he's picked
0: it up. Oh, he's buying
3: it. He's buying it. And we you know, we watched several copies go out the door that morning. And that was really, that was really really fun. It was just like, oh, it's like having us, like, our baby's been born. Here, have a cigar, everybody. You know, so that was bad. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your point, but that just it brought
1: that up. No, you're fine. I mean, really, the horror section in Best Buy in, like, 2002 oh, or 2003 yeah, is yeah. the entire movie section now Best (laughs) Buy yeah yeah yeah
3: I think I mean you know no people buying DVDs in stores physically who does that anymore you know it's just it's yeah that whole that whole industry has shifted so dramatically it's not even it's it's a faint echo of what it was 20
2: years ago yeah I am curious like because I don't want to go through every one of these titles, slip because there's no way. Like, even if we just went with like the the mainstream four titles, it would take till freaking five o'clock in the morning.
0: But
2: just, <laughs> we did. Just, we did do quite a
3: few of those. Yes,
2: I mean there just were out of curiosity for a couple of them that I have yeah. no idea, like, or I would have had no idea about previous to Anchor Bay releasing them. Like, how does the Argento collection and the Full Cheek collection come about?
3: I think that was a natural evolution of the fact that we were getting attention for a lot of the cult titles. And that's where I think Bill Lestick certainly was helpful because he had contacts to figure out a way to contact the licensors overseas for a lot of these titles. And at that time, the idea of doing collector's editions of, of Euro horror titles was no one was like, what the fuck, huh?
2: I mean, yeah. It was just,
3: you know, yeah. it was just like that no one can consider you want to do what now? So that's kind of how that, and then once that ball started rolling, it was just like, well, what other Euro horror title can we get? I mean, it was an am- that it was an amazing amount of Euro horror that came out in the f- four and a half five years I was there, and it was just a. F- and some of those times... here's another thing that needs to be said, you know, that because of the Acre Bay and the way we publicized these titles and the way people kind of talked about them, there was a sort of a myth that every single thing we brought out was a huge seller. It was not. Um, it, a lot of the titles did okay, and some kind of outright tanks because, uh, you know. The, there was a very limited audience for them, but they uh, they did still find the people that they were going for, but it was just a matter of not every single thing that came out you know, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. But fortunately, we had Evil Dead, Don't Love the Dead, Day of the Dead, Halloween, Army of Darkness to kind of make up for the fact that maybe A Blade in the Dark didn't set the world on fire when it first <laughs> came out, you know. <laughs> but that was okay, and that was okay, and then from Jay's perspective, it was just like it all was out in the wash anyway, and we still get to bring out these really cool titles. So not every title had to perform like Evil Dead, because uh, we had A B we had A titles, B titles, and C titles, and so it was a matter of well, let's sell this much or this much or this much, and if it if it couldn't even sell like the base of a C title, chances are we weren't going to do it anyway. And, but you know it was, it was always interesting to see, especially with the Euro horror titles, which ones were really. Sold, and usually if we if we slapped if we had Fulte or Argento's name on it it was almost a guarantee like zombie was one of the biggest things we ever brought out cumulatively was zombie um and then of course Suspiria and opera although Suspiria and opera have a little bit of a um uh, a little bit of notoriety because those both those both those titles came out on the same day and uh that day was September 11th 2001. Jesus. That was, oh, our, oh, that oh, was oh. our street date for for, uh, for Suspiria and Opera, which was just like, oh, that's an unfortunate little bit of timing. But, I mean, not that, you know, that, that was not the great tragedy that day that those DVDs didn't sell all that great on opening day because I think people were, were pri- understandably more prioritized on other things that were going on. I don't want to suggest that that was the, right. uh, in any way a big deal, but it was just kind of an odd footnote. It was just like, oh, okay.
1: Are there... Um... Any particular titles? Because there's a few um, on this. Uh, we've got a list of everything that they've ever come out with mm. that have still never come out again on uh,
0: yeah.
1: DVD. Yeah, Anything in particular that you would love to do, like a special edition Blu-ray of that uh, um, one oh, of the God. titles yes. as hasn't come back in a year?
3: I'd like to see Near Dark done again properly with a new transfer. Uh, in terms of extras, I don't think there's really much that needs to be done for that, because that was a great package that was done back then. David Gregory really did a great documentary and got all the great people uh, to participate in that. Uh, but we would I would love to see that one come back out and get a, a real HD transfer and a restoration. because what we did back then was great, but you know, that was twenty eighteen years ago. Um, so that was that's one. Uh, I mean, a lot of the other titles uh, that I worked on have, one, in one form or another, come back out. So I'd have to be reminded of which ones haven't.
1: There was one that I'd seen. I, has Pin ever come back out on
0: anything? No, Pin. That's a good
3: one. Yeah, Pin has not, and that's because the company that owned it at the time that we owned it had licensed it from at the time doesn't own it anymore. And it's a, and and where it has gone has still been a source of uh, confusion for some people. So I think there may be someone that's trying to work on that right now. I'd love to see. I was a big proponent of Pin when that came out. I really wanted to see that one come out. In fact, I think I wrote the liner notes for it. I'm not entirely wow. sure. Um,
1: yeah, I knew that was, um, that was one that I was like, man, I've, I've completely forgot about that movie.
3: Yeah, and it's a great little film. And it's a it's one of those movies that was very much right up our alley. Because it's like, how do you, how do you classify that one? It's like, well, it's not really a horror movie. But it's not a thriller either. It's got a very uneasy mix, and it's it's one of those movies that you feel really uneasy while you're watching. It's got such an odd tone to it, and it's just the uh, the pin doll is really creepy, and the just the everything about the way that movie was filmed. It's just very unsettling. And what's interesting about that is, you know who the voice of Pin was?
2: Oh God, who? Uh,
3: Who's you ever that? Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul? Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ermontrout
2: oh yeah
3: yeah he's the voice of pin which is cracks (laughs) me up it's just like of all the people they got they got it's like wow so i would love to do it I if pin ever comes back i would love to get an interview with him just to go how the hell did that game come up for
2: you i tell you another one on here that's confusing to me too though that i that they may have released like better you know, editions, Blu-rays them something, I don't know of them off the top of my head. is like the Peter Jackson stuff. Like well, the,
3: yeah, yeah. Uh, we got, we did Bad Taste and um, another film of his called Forgotten Silver, which was this mockumentary that he did. Um, he owns all those early movies again and it's up to him. At the time, he didn't fully. And so, because he, he produced a lot of those early films in cooperation with the New Zealand Film Commission whom we licensed bad taste from at the time. And the reason that he didn't participate in bad taste at that time was he was in the middle of filming the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. So there was no way he was going to have time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then after a while that movie eventually, I think he got the rights back to all of those and it's up to him whether they ever come back out or not, because he controls them and he wants to restore them and do, you know, all this stuff for himself. But my whole argument is, when is he going to have time to focus on doing that? The guy's like a mini industry, you know. So it's just going to be a matter of when he finally gets the, the opportunity to kind of focus on it and feels it's a good time to bring him out. But I would kill to see Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles and Brain Dead and even Heavenly Creatures and some of those come back out again because they're they're my I love Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles in particular. Two of my all time favorite movies. I just think that they're just brilliant and fun and just incredibly inventive and I'd love to see real, real great restorations of
2: those come back out. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Another
1: one, though, like, um, I wanted to mention on here because I was just curious about this myself. Blake Paris actually was asking about the, the fry pack sets. They were deleted. The <laughs> oh, um, I don't know if it... Was it titles that were, like, not big sellers that they would kind of pack together, just try to... Are
3: you talking to try about those get, ones that look like get, a six-pack all... here on the outside?
1: Yes. Yeah. They, um, yeah. there was one, with some Italian yeah, that, stuff. Was a,
3: that was the idea of one of our marketing managers, uh, Tom, he came up with that <laughs> idea. Um, we just put, yeah, some of the, a lot of those were ones that were sort of C titles, lower B titles, that individually hadn't done much. And we just had some lying around and it was a matter of just a way to try to repackage stuff. You know, we were always trying to think outside the box and so how can we remarket stuff we already have? Um, Personally, I never much cared for those. Um, I always thought it was a little bit kind of crass. It's like, you know, horror, six pack of beer, and just kind of like lower. St- I don't know. It just seemed a little bit kind of like, you know, these aren't movies. It's just a. It's just a. You know, a, a thing that's on your shelf. I don't know. It was like a, a mixed message. I always felt. Maybe I'm overthinking it. To be I honest think, with you,
1: uh, at the time, um, Shriek show were doing the. They were doing the multi pack. I always thought that Anchor Bay, that was kind of their version of that.
3: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there was any connection there or not, because I never remember that being discussed at the office, but I you know I um, but um, but yeah, no, we did several of those, and I think some of them did pretty well. Um Cemetery but, Bank, that
1: was another one that somebody brought yeah. up. What's that one
3: well that one was a difficult one because we licensed that through Fox at the time. And they didn't have any elements. They didn't have a master. Cause the problem with that movie is that there's like eight companies that have a piece of that. And so trying to find who had a master that was usable for it was very, very difficult. In the end, we found one that was okay. Um, but then Fox's rights eventually ran out. So anchor Bay's rights ran out and where it is now is with a couple other people. And um, it was, I was hearing that it was actually going to finally come back out, but then, Someone started talking about a remake, and then the rights got confused. So I don't know what's going on with that. So the U.S. rights on that are still kind of a, an up-in-the-air thing, unfortunately.
2: Hmm. There's so many good ones on here. I mean, what about the drive-in double features, Sleepy?
3: Oh, yeah, those were great. Those were great. Yeah, that was another uh, attempt to try to get some of these. A uh, couple titles that individually wouldn't have sold. I didn't mean, think would sell very well on their own. Um, and then the some that we had been out before but we thought would make more sense to pair together like, you know, Hail the Living Dead and Rats. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was some other ones in there. That was
1: paired together again on the Blu-ray, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, and so it was funny. A lot of those did very well, and I liked that line very, very much because it was like trying to find, okay, well, what, what, two thing, what two great tastes go great together and trying to, to figure out and it was like, and also it was nice if we could get one title that was stronger than the other, so you could get one that was like, okay, people are going to want to buy it for this, but then they might try this one out. So it, that, and some of those did very, very well. Uh, I remember them, some of them, like the Hell Knight, I think it was, was it Hell Knight and Fade to Black? Yeah. I think that we did together, Or those yep. did very well, and uh, Hell, Living Dead, Rats, and there was, a, the Initiation was with one, and. We had mountain t- there were a lot of the New World titles were sprinkled in there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's hard for us for me to remember exactly what they were, but I think we did like a dozen of those. Something something to that effect. It was a lot.
1: I was looking up um, on eBay just some of the Anchor Bay titles that still go for <laughs> a amount of money. The Probably the one that still goes for crazy money, in my opinion, would be the Sleepaway Camp, the Recall, uh,
3: you know, oh. the... Oh, Funny story about. Funny campus. story about that. I was in L.A. about a year and a half ago, and I went over to Amoeba Music. And sitting on the shelf was a mint condition Sleepaway Camp box set, the exclusive one with Best Buy that had the Red Cross on the cover. And they only went. They were only asking like thirty bucks for it. Jesus. <laughs> and I and I was like, holy shit! I bought it. I was yeah. like I didn't. I didn't even have one anymore. Uh, and so that I, I I went ahead and got that, but yeah, that one was a big release because <laughs> violated the fucking Geneva Convention uh, <laughs> yeah. by putting the the Red Cross on the cover. We got we got spanked. Oh, uh, just uh, innocent yeah. times yeah. back then. Yeah, we got spanked for that. We got spanked a couple times with people who would come out of the blue and go, uh, "You don't have the rights to do that. Uh, no, you can't do that." I was like, "Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry about that." So uh, what happened? But,
1: to that? Did they just? Recall this the slip covers and put a new slip cover on them, or
3: no? They-, they were actually, in retrospect, they were actually quite cool. We we put we we did our first run, and sent that out, and then the government or whoever called us and say, hey, look, you can't do that. But they didn't make us recall anything or destroy anything. It's okay, just stop making it from now on and change it. What's out there is out there, fine. But just from this point on, from from the end of this phone call, don't send any more out. And just re- redo it. So then we just redid it where it said actually said, like, survival kit and blood or whatever on a, on the front. So they didn't make us destroy or, or recall anything. We may have had some unmade ones that we ended up not doing, but we, ne- we didn't have to take anything off the store shelves. Uh, so that was nice, at least. But uh, that made it instantly collectible. I remember, like, the day after, or no, it wasn't even the day after. It was, like, two or three hours, four or five hours after we made the announcement that that set was... You know we were going to make these changes and then that set wasn't going to be made anymore. We all individually in the office went on to eBay and said they're scalping them already, son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like within hours, people are like the rare and out of print sleep on my campus. That's <laughs> rare. You can go to Best Buy right now and still
1: get it. Well, was, just, it was, you know. yeah, it still is. I mean, the thing is, is like how long ago was that? That was 15, 16 years ago
3: yeah it was 2003 I think yeah I think that was so I guess was seventeen years ago something like that
1: and it's still worth the money.
3: I know and it's and it was a great set um the designer that Joe valued was she was really proud of that she she, she put a lot of effort into that and so it was a little a little heartbreaking for her to have to kind of change it because the Red Cross really was a, a great design uh, but you know it's just like well okay we, we cannot we're not gonna fight the US government over this So at the end of the day it's like all right, sorry real sorry
1: The, the could be the joke. package too like just overall some of the product around that time period like the the uh divamax day of the dead said i love the packaging oh, well on.
3: i could tell, i i was the marketing manager on that um i i went i marketed manager a few titles i didn't really want to go into marketing very much because it just wasn't really something that appealed to me all that much because it was just a lot of bullshit you had to put up with and you know, by that in that time in the company, we were getting ready to be sold to someone else, so they were really clamping down on budgets, and you had to really justify every decision you wanted to make. And Jade was leaving, and um, you know, it was just like, ugh. but uh, Day of the Dead was very much my baby, so I came up with the idea for the, you know, what are we going to do we want for the packaging, and I worked with one of the designers, Rob Webb, on how to put this together and do this really cool sort of textured relief of Bub on the front. They had a die cut cover and you can open it up and you'd see the dock underneath. And I mean, it was just really, and then the booklet, which was an idea that I, cause we had that booklet in there, which was done to make it look like the doctor's handbook that came about because we had very little money to do a booklet. And so it's like, well, we need to do something that's cheap. So I'm like, okay, well, what if it's like a rough black and white hand, you know, like I'm like just like, almost like generic paper that looks like the doctor's notes. And the only color we can afford to do is red. The rest of it has to be black and white. And so the re- so that was one where the budget drove the creative direction of it. And I think it's great. Um, yeah. It was it was really one of my favorite little pieces of that release. But uh, I remember driving to Chicago to the printing plant to see the first day of the deads come off with that uh, textured bub on the front that, that sort of, you know, and it was just like, oh, this is so cool. This is going to be such a cool release. And then, unfortunately, they uh, – Something happened in the uh, um, the directions for assembly. And because you get that, you you, you have the, 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 the DVD case with the two DVDs in it and then the book that was supposed to be inside and then you shut it and close it up. And then on the back is the cover with all the contents of the UPC code. Well, somewhere, someone got the idea that the, and I don't know how this happened or who thought this was what we were supposed to do, but they thought, Okay, well, what do we do with the booklet? Well, let's spot glue it to the back of the DVD package and then shrink wrap it. So we finally get our final samples, our final, our first printed package samples of Day of the Dead. They're going, starting to go out the door to the retailers, and we get our first box in, and usually that's a glorious day. where It's like, look, it's all finished in here, and I pull it out, and the goddamn booklet is on the back of every single one covering up all the contents of the UPC code on the back of the thing and I'm like why is it oh my god oh my god they're all in the back so I cover I call the 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 manufacturer said my god what why is this what's going on now I haven't opened up any of them yet I just see that it's been shrunk wrapped to the back of the package I'm like why is this on the back like this the stores aren't going to be able to scan in the UPC code no one's going to know what's in the set this is most of the directions we have right here booklet to be spot glued to the back I'm like glued it's glued and i i i I tear open the sprinkler and i and i think from their perspective they just heard a barrage of screaming and profanity from me for like about a minute and a half i was like why the fuck is this fucking thing glued how the fuck does this happen what the fuck is it like i was so mad. but fortunately we managed to stop any of it from actually going out and they had to pull it all back in and repackage all of it but then it was like that did not come from this office. No one here would have said Spot glue the fucking booklet on the back of the Yeah, thing.
1: Uh, I think I remember you telling us that story at a convention one time.
3: Yeah. The, um, I did, yeah that was a frantic day. So I was like, it's glued.
0: What?
1: <laughs> oh my God. The, uh, one other thing too, I guess is you kind of got your start with, what you're doing now at anchor bay uh, I did
3: yeah yeah
1: that's the start there. the demons I think was the first one yeah
3: it was it was the first cuz I mean, we had a great team of people out there doing that already first with David Gregory and his team and then later on after he and Bill Lustig left uh Perry Martin uh and his team took over there and did great stuff so they they had teams in place to do that already but it been really my goal to be a filmmaker to begin with and I saw that as an opportunity to say I would really like to get into doing that and through circumstances that just sort of happened, uh, they got the eye of the demons and I thought, well, are you going to get an interview with Amelia quickly? And they were like, well, she doesn't really live where our people are. And we're not sure about it. And it turns out she was going to be at a convention in Cleveland, which I was going to be going to anyway. And so like, Oh, okay. So I contacted her. She agreed to do it. And then I went down there and my camera gear was stolen and a friend of mine, named Mike, yeah, no, I went down there. I had brought a brand new camera and tripod and a couple of lights and stuff. And uh, the camera was stolen. And uh, she was actually, it was weird. There were two conventions that weekend. I was at the one convention and shit disappeared on me. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? Unfortunately, a pair of good friends, Mike Watt and Amy Lynn Bass, said, well, we have a camera. We can help you out. And so we went over to the other convention where Linnea was and we filmed her interview. Thank God. I owe them everything for that and filmed uh, her interview. She was a delight, and uh, went back home, edited it on my own. It was the first time I, I, I'd gotten to know Adobe Premiere a little bit by that point on my own with some other stuff, so I, I put it all together, presented it to Anchor Bay, and they were like, this is great, Michael, this is really, really great, and we'll definitely uh, use it on the release, but we can't promise that we'll be able to use you for this going forward because we already have people. And I was like, and I understood that. But it was my attempt to show them, hey, I can actually do something like this instead of what I've been doing. But again, they they didn't really need me for that. So, but that gave me the the impetus to say, okay, well, if I can do this, I was able to do this, maybe I can do more. And then when I left the company, I think it was almost like less than a year later after I did that for Night of the Demons, probably not even that long, maybe eight or nine months, I thought, well, I've got contacts, people know who I am, and I'm I want to do this, so that's when Red Shirt Pictures was officially born. I used the Red Shirt Pictures name on that Night of the Demons piece, but the uh, the company was officially incorporated in April of 2005, right after I left Anchor Bay. So getting to do that little piece was very important for me because it's like, no, oh, I guess I can do this. You know, it's worth a cool.
2: shot. So what would you say would be like, I don't know how to say it, but like the, the one thing that you would point to, at anchor bay that you would say okay this is the project that i was proudest to be involved with and which one would you say okay this is the one that kind of like i was the most disappointed in
3: wow i can't pick just one because there were so many different things at periods of time but there's three that come to mind for me with anchor bay near dark because i loved that movie i even named my high school production company near dark productions i loved that movie to death i was a big proponent of it and I was very involved with the creative direction that that title took from the packaging and everything. I mean, I didn't design it, but I was very active in wanting to see how we could make this thing really special. And I just loved that movie, and I wanted to do everything we could for it. And I think we did such a bang-up job on that. And I feel that more people got to see that movie through our DVD than any other release or method before. Uh, that really, I felt like we really, we really properly introduced that movie to the movie-going public. Uh, was through that DVD, and it sold amazingly well. Um, The other one would be The Book of the Dead, The Evil Dead, Book of the Dead. Yeah. Which I, that was such an amazing, gloriously rocky process because we were doing, no one knew how the hell to do this. There wasn't like an existing template for how to do something like that, but getting to meet and work with Tom Sullivan and then having to deal with a New York sales agent who was putting this together with a company in China and then having regular communications with them about how to put this thing together and getting a book samples back. That would be wrong in like 10 different ways, but right in one and say, okay, well that's right. But we got to change. I mean, it was an amazing process. And when that thing finally came out, it was like, we just felt like we had conquered fucking Mount Everest with that thing. Cause it was like, no one had ever done anything else like that. And in many ways, I always felt like we were chasing the book of the dead for a long time after that, trying to come up with, the pressure was on. It's like, well, how do we create the next Book of the Dead? My argument was like, well, we really can't. Um, That was just such a perfect thing where it was a prop and a package all at the same time. That's a very rare, that was just lightning striking. Instead of trying to top that, we should just do what's cool for other, you know, it's like, well, we need to do the Book of the Dead for Dawn of the Dead. It's like, well, uh, it doesn't really work that way. And and it's funny because that approach ended ended up leaving us because with bon- the Dawn of the Dead Ultimate Edition, we had a whole, whole different design aesthetic in place. We were going to do this like fuzzy like velvet cover for it that was going to feel like really prestigious and cool. And, and we were trying desperately to make this work, but the costs were not coming in. And, and we kept staying on that road until the very end when it finally became apparent, okay, there's, the costs are just out of whack. There's no way this is going to work. And it left us with only a few days to come up with a design for a more conventional slipcase packaging for that thing. And ultimately I think that's what made it so great. It was because we didn't have time to second guess ourselves. Mike went in and came up with this very cool red and black design. It was very spare in many ways and it just very it felt very elegant and it just felt it felt important and classy. And we didn't have time to overthink it. And it, it, as a result, so that was the result. Of it, and then I think it was like maybe four or five days from the time that we came up with the design to the time we sent it off to the printer. All of that came wow. together because we were like. I well,
1: remember we, when we were yeah. at um, the horrifying convention in Baltimore that summer before it <laughs> came out, there were yeah. copies of it. I think the Anchor Bay was sponsoring the show and they were giving yeah. copies away. yeah was there. So we saw it like a month or two before it came out. I was like, oh, shit. You know. <laughs> yeah, and when you
3: pick... What I loved about the Dawn of the Dead thing was in many ways, yeah, it was a conventional package with like a, a trifold thing and it slipped in there and blah, blah, blah. But when you picked that thing up, it felt expensive. I mean, it just felt like, god damn, this thing has... this feels like a brick. You yeah. know, this was like, there's what is in this fucking thing. And, uh, you know, that... I got to do a lot some... and I got to venture out a little bit in that and I... When we started developing that, like that was almost a two-year process from the time of renegotiating the rights to getting that out. The thing I wanted to do more than anything was get a commentary together with the four cast members. I said we've got to do this. We said we've got to get the four. Pe- we got to get those four people in a fucking room together. And people were like, oh, "Okay, we'll see, we'll see." I was like, "No, man, this is going to be my problem. We're going to do this." And I c- managed to contact all of them, get them all together in New York City, and I was there, and we were in the. Uh, the boardroom, the executive boardroom of the Leona Helms, the, the Helmsley Hotel in, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in New York City. And we recorded this commentary. It was me, my recordist, Armin Petri, and Ken Forey, David Emge, Galen Ross, and Scott Reininger. It was the first time all four of them had been together since the movie had come out. And they're having a great old time. And I'm just sitting there with the biggest, goofiest fucking smile on my face. Because it's like, this is. Not only is this, are they all here? It's going really well, and I was just like, "They're here! The cast of Dawn of the Dead is here in this room with me. How fucking cool is this?" Um, so that you know, Dawn of the Dead is another one that really—I guess there's four: Near Dark, you know, Evil Dead, Book of the Dead, The Dawn of the Dead Ultimate Edition, and then finally the Herzog Kinski collection, hmm. uh,
0: think- which,
3: which was something that was brainstormed between me and Mike Ortiz based off a flyer he did that was advertising a couple of the Herzog releases, which was really cool and had this really interesting use of color. And I'm like, you know, if we want to do, because there would have been talk about doing a box set of just the herzog Kinski collaborations. And I'm like, well, what if we did a box set that looked like this flyer? And so between he and I, we came up with this overall approach and we dummied up this box set that, you know, he designed it and we patched it together using a, uh, a couple different ideas and I had this Acer computer which came with this really great like slip case this really elegant slip case that had all the manuals in it and I brought that in and so said what if we did it in a box like this he's like oh okay and so we, we dummied up this thing with like spit and cardboard and glue and everything and we walked into Jay Douglas's office to pitch this thing we had this whole spiel and everything I was like this is what we want to do and how we want to do it why we think it's cool and blah blah blah. We walk in. There's a Jay. We want to talk to you about this idea we had. We handed him the box, and before we even said anything, he picked up the box. He looked at it, opened it up. Yeah, it's cool. Go do it. And that was it. And we were oh. both like, um, "Well, we had this whole speech. Do you, <laughs> you have the? Do you you want to you want to hear it? No, no, it's cool, guys. Go do it. And, you know, I was like, all right. And uh, eventually, it came out, and we were going to do five thousand pieces of this thing. And we ended up selling, I, I know at one point, we ended up selling 25,000 units of it. I mean, it was just, so that's one of the ones I'm most proud, because that one was just came up, that was me and Mike going, what if we did this? And then mm-hmm. suddenly it, it became a thing, and that was, um, that's one I have a great. So the, I would say those four are the ones that I'm just like, are kind of touchstones for me. In terms of the ones that didn't work, it's usually because of, the cover just we had for as many great covers as we had, unfortunately a committee sort of sense of thinking became came into play during a couple years there and we we we, we shat out some pretty shitty covers for some of these releases. Cut and run was one that I remember being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> uh
2: now that is
0: so,
3: Yeah, that
2: is pretty shitty cover. Yeah,
3: it's like yeah. this blue cover with this out of focus image of Richard Harris or not Richard Richard Lynch. And it looks like a bad Miami Vice ripoff. And I'm like, what is this? Where's Michael Berman with the fucking machete? It's like, we're not using illustrated covers anymore. I'm like, what? So yeah, illustrated covers, <laughs> they're saying that they don't they don't sell. I'm oh, like, God. who the fuck said what? <laughs> so that led to a lot of like the race with the devil was another and I don't want to and I'm not blaming the designers for this because they, none of them were I happy with these covers.
1: I thought of that when you said bad artwork.
3: Oh yeah, that was that was horrendous. I mean it's just like and, and the designers that were responsible for these covers, I don't blame them because they didn't want to do those covers either. You know, and they, they just got micromanaged to death and ended up being just these really horrible things that and so there was like, Evil Speak was another one that was really terrible and it was just like who are these four? I don't understand who the hell are these I mean, who are you hoping to attract with these I mean it was just the worst cover though actually happened after I left um, and if I've, I, I, in my mind, <laughs> in my mind, they waited to do this after I left because if they had tried to do it while I was there, I would have burned the fucking building to the ground. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's not what actually happened. But they did a repackaging of George Romero's Night Riders that was <laughs> the most misleading piece of garbage I have ever seen put on a DVD cover. For those of you out there, go look it up. You can find it. It was, I think this was done like 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. The cover is all black with some guy on a motorcycle who's not on the fucking movie in the front with this like crazed expression on his face. And it's all black and dark and night and gritty. And it's like the, the, the tagline is something like, ride to live, live to die. <laughs> and and the and the title treatment is blood red, and on the K and the S at the end of Night Riders, it has what looks like fangs on it. So if you looked at the thing, if you looked at the cover, you think this is a vampire biker flick. And I'm I remember seeing that cover at the office. I dropped by uh, to visit Mike or something one day, and I saw this routing going through, and I'm like what in the fuck is this? And he's like, don't do it, dude. Don't Please don't get involved. Please don't say anything. Like, all right, I'm not going to because I don't work here anymore, but this is a goddamn abomination. And uh, <laughs> I remember George got wind of it and he had to sign, I think he signed one at the convention. He, I remember he went, Mike, did I make this movie? What movie is this? I don't remember making this movie. And I'm like, you didn't make that movie, George. I don't know what the fuck that is. Uh, was just so that that was oh my god so yeah for anyone out there go find that cover and you'll see what i'm talking about it's it is the most misrepresentative piece of shit that i have ever seen put out there it was terrible i mean Um, Knight
2: riders is a movie that's actually kind of hard to would be kind of hard to market anyway yeah and i don't i understand
3: what they were trying to do you know they were trying to you know hip it up in a way or make it a little bit more palatable to a George, cause it's, you know, George A. Romero's Night Riders. It's like, well, I guess they're trying to pitch it to the audience that would normally buy a George Romero film, but they're going to buy this thing thinking, Vampire Bikers! This is going to be awesome! And then they watch <laughs> the movie and it's like, what the fuck is this? You know, yeah. this is not... Yeah, but god damn. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's the worst cover I think I've ever seen on a DVD. And uh, technically it was an Anchor Bay title, but I wasn't there at the time. But some of the ones we did while I was there I wasn't very happy with, but you know, it just comes with the territory.
1: The, um, you know, it's, we don't keep you on here all night, but the.
3: I don't mind talking about Anchor Bay. It was a good time.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of great memories and stuff like that. And I did read, I don't know if this is true. We can do a little bit of Wikipedia fact or fiction. Well, if, well, if, it's, on, if,
3: if it's on Wikipedia, it must be true.
1: Um, <laughs>
3: right.
1: Does Lionsgate actually own the Anchor Bay name now, or what's the deal? Yeah,
3: yeah, they do because they, um, my, uh, the, the way this worked was it was Anchor Bay owned by the Handelman Company. Handelman Company sold off Anchor Bay Entertainment to a telecommunications company called IDT, who owned it the last year or so that I was there. And then shortly after I left, they sold Anchor Bay Entertainment to Stars because Stars didn't have a home video label. You know, they had the original product and series and they had the cable channels but they didn't have a home video out. So that was kind of the reasons they picked up Anchor Bay as a way to have their own product go through there and stars owned Anchor Bay going forward. And then Lionsgate bought stars. When that happened, the need for Anchor Bay was not there anymore because Anchor Bay was a home video distributor and Lionsgate has their own home video label. So they didn't really need Anchor Bay. So they repurposed what existing product was under Anchor Bay's name and put it out through Lionsgate. And then, uh, the Anchor Bay name just went away. But, no, it's technically still over there.
1: So, you know, I mean, at Lionsgate, they're using the Vestron name right yeah. now. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's a possibility <laughs> down the line they may see, hey, you know, maybe we can release some of these titles under the Anchor Bay name. It's possible. I guess,
3: I guess it's possible. I, I, for me, I would just like to see, I, I wouldn't want it to be treated as just a, a branding thing. I would, I would like to see if someone could just, you know, get the name, buy the name Anchor Bay and then actually start a whole new thing with it and kind of, you know, you know go back to basics with it, and kind of start over with it. Um, that would be kind of cool. But um, as to whether or not they I, would actually do that or not, I don't know.
1: If it, if it were today a company that would get some of these cult movies and release them in like 4K or something like that, that would yeah, be the closest. Yeah, dude, and
3: I think they would do uh, kind of what Jay would to do back then was do really kind of high price limited edition, like specialty packaging, uh, just things that, you know, they do a limited run of 5,000 pieces or whatever, and then that would be it. And just right. like really make, really, really go hardcore for the collector market again. Because that's when we were at our best, was when we really saw, these are our people who are buying this, let's pitch directly to them. Let's not pretend we're trying to sell this. I mean, it was great when we could sell to a wider audience, absolutely. Uh, and some of those titles played big across mainstream audiences, but you know when we uh, when we did the Anchor Bay, you know some of those those real special limited edition tins and stuff, it was like, you know we we didn't do a special you know license plate tin of Repo Man for the masses.
2: This was made
3: yeah. for there's a, there's a, it's like we know there's a group of people out there who are going to see this and go that's cool I want to own that, and then most people are going to go by there and go what the fuck is that. Well, we're not worried about those people. We're, we want some people that are going to buy this thing without even thinking twice about it. I'm
2: telling it's, you, though, that that group and that that kind of marketing strategy still exists today. And probably oh, very runs. much so. Because you look at like Vinegar Syndrome and oh, yeah, Relation, yeah. what they're doing. They release, you know, maybe like I don't know if it's like between three and five hundred of the limited edition with like the slip covers. Oh, yeah. And, they sell out almost immediately and then they're on eBay for like, you know, $200. Something oh yeah. Like. No,
3: the, 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 the marketing DNA of, of Anchor Bay's legacy is present. Like I said, in so many of the companies that you see out there to because I mean, it worked. It was a very viable strategy and it helped create a brand. Anchor Bay became a brand. It wasn't just a distributor. It became Anchor, That that boat, that little fucking boat became a thing that people really cherished, and they wanted to own as many things that had that boat on it as possible. And that's when we knew we really had succeeded when it was like, uh, you know, I would get all the emails in from people. And that was one of my jobs was to answer emails from the public. And I can't tell you how many people across the world would say, Hey, I went and bought this thing because I'd, I'd never heard of it before, but I saw your company's logo on it. And I figured well, I'll give it a shot. And that, and Jay loved hearing shit like that. It's like, then that means yeah. we're doing I th- And I writing.
1: think people still do that.
3: Yeah. I think that happens a lot to this day, but Anchor Bay really developed that I don't want to say first but certainly was uh, the first sort of genre company like that to really capitalize on that across the board with a number of different titles and use use titles like Halloween Army of Darkness and Dawn of the Dead to really you know show people like well if you like this try Martin well if you like this try that you know so we, we really, We were very good at trying to just expose people to a bunch of cool shit, which was kind of, like I said, what what Jay's mantra was.
1: Hey guys, Creepy Kentucky and back here again. And we had recorded the show without an ending. So this is kind of going to be the ending. Um, we had a couple of technical snafus. Um, the podcast, technically the pod podcast version of this show is really just three episodes in, even though we're at like episode eight. So uh, still working out some kinks, hopefully in the next Two, three months, the audio quality is going to be much, much better. So, thank you guys for checking the show out. Hope you all enjoyed the show. Michael Felcher is always fun to talk to, and we had never had him on to discuss only Anchor Bay and the history of Anchor Bay Entertainment. So, that was fun. A couple things, real quick check us out on the YouTube page. We're doing some video reviews that's exclusive to the YouTube page at Dead Pit. Uh, on YouTube, and also the new Dead Pit Revival t-shirt on FastCustomShirts.com. So that's available as well. Uh, we didn't really talk about that on the show either because their minds kind of going everywhere. But um, thank you guys for listening again. Hope you guys had fun checking the show out. And we will be back sooner than later because it is Season of the Spooks.
0: Between heaven and the tall pine trees. Hard land, I'm missing you. Guitar band.